wagging his finger Our box is scratching his head They ought to be shooting the bankers But they're giving them money instead The pleb should be storming the ramparts And wetting the guillotine's blade Singing capitalism's in crisis So where are the barricades? Close down the city and throw all the gamblers in jail But they're still making money, make money As they slice up the future for sale And Sir Numskull still hugging his bonus Lord Grab has made off with the loot And the slick city traders, the corporate raiders Freebooters and fraudsters, hedge fund speculators The stock market scammers, brain dead regulators they all getting the boot See how the bubbles are bursting All the solid melts into air The stairs are beginning to rattle And the rats are beginning to stare There are cracks in the walls and the ceiling And smoke's pouring out the front door But the creme de la creme are all betting that the flames never reach the top floor They tell us that cuts are essential To keep this rust bucket afloat But nobody seems to be asking Why don't we just scuttle the boat? They say we're all in this together Just like we were in the war And in time the wheels will start turning again And we'll all as before At last I see workers protesting But there isn't a red flag in sight And where are the banners proclaiming Workers of the world must unite Do they call for the heads of the bosses Sing for capitalism's last days Or is it British jobs for British workers What the barricades is a question that we have asked in the past that we are going to ask this morning. But first, before introducing my guest this morning, David Rovix, I have, yes, been away for three weeks. I do want to apologize to my listeners who uh, might have been wondering what became of me. I know, you know, with the station still, you know, semi shut down and we don't have a lot of board operators, it's kind of hard to let everybody know what's going on exactly. So anyway, I just had a bit of a, a, a stress crisis. Um, and uh, 
but I'm better and I'm glad to be back. So with that, without further ado, uh, good morning, David. Good morning, Paul. And your hair definitely turned a shade whiter in the past month, I would say, and oh. since you mentioned the stress crisis. I, I don't know if that's a therapeutic thanks, thanks, observation. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that to my attention. <laughs> that really helps immensely. Anyway, yes, yes, it does do that. I remember when it first went white, was another serious stress episode. It's funny right. how that works, you know, people. Right. Anyway. You look at occupants of the White House, like Barack Obama, his hair started going white within months of entering the White House. Indeed. So, um, well, I could just ask you, where the heck are the barricades? But maybe we'll lead up to that question. <laughs> so the, the subject of today's show, let me just adjust my mic so I can, we're in separate rooms just because I'm so used to being in good old production one where I've got the, you know, the big big screen computer, I can see everything on here. and uh, All the buttons and dials. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel in control. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are confronting divisions on the left with, indeed, David Rovix. So, um, uh, David Rovix, uh, I've heard your music. I actually met you a couple times when I first got back to Portland, and there was that kind of that... Uh, a couple years of, uh, you know, kind of post-Occupy with the, the kind of the continued pretty serious activism. The defense of uh, homes under eviction was a, a big movement going on. And I think that's where I first ran into you. Mm. And I've occasionally played your songs on my, my shows. Um, so you've been writing and performing uh, music, politically charged music, as I write on our program page, for decades. Um, but you've increasingly turned to actually writing. You've got this column on Substack this week with David Rovix, which I get in my email box on a regular basis, um, uh, writing about critical social and political issues, including those that are preventing the left from becoming a more powerful force when we really, really, really need it. Because who else? Mm. I mean, we don't want the far right to you know, try to solve our problems for us. We've seen what happens when they do. And of course, you know, the left doesn't have necessarily the greatest track record when they get into state power either, but we can talk about all that. So in the face of unprecedented intersecting crises, the forces of what we know as the left continue to be more divided than united, facil actually facilitating the worsening of the problems of economic justice, climate chaos, and political stalemate. So we're going to be looking at some of these internal conflicts that a lot of people don't really want to deal with. It's like our dirty laundry or something, something stupid like that. But it is, yeah. Anyway. And people would rather just not talk about it yeah. because if you talk about it well, then you're going to get cancellation campaigning coming after you as as most of the good organizers out there listening um, are already aware because they've already been canceled. So um, we're going to talk, talk, talk about the liberal versus radical analysis in action Free discourses, free discourse versus no platforming, real organizing versus cancellation campaigning, inclusives versus exclusives. Anyway, we'll talk about all these things. So, first of all, um, I uh, just tell us a little bit about how you got into being like a, you know a political singer songwriter. <clears throat> the, my my origin stories my, my origin story is kind of boring I'd say because my parents are both musicians and I grew up about a half an hour's drive from Pete Seeger's house I mean you know so it's just kind of not that I not that I knew Pete Seeger as a child but just for context I mean I grew up in in the in the uh, 
what's in the shadow? What's a positive way of saying that? You know, in the, in the very much like in the uh, you know image of uh, what was happening around me, which was which was the you know Clearwater Folk Festival and Pete Seeger. I mean, my parents were classical musicians, but I was uh, very much exposed to that end of the music spectrum, and I was. I, I had no idea what else I might do with my life other than be a professional musician because everybody I knew were professional musicians growing up. So it was just kind of the obvious path, although obviously it's not an obvious path to so was that most a, people. Was that a venue for you early on, the Clearwater Folk Festival? It was um, the first festival I ever got invited to sing at, which I didn't actually sing at, which was Pete Seeger called me up and asked me if I'd come uh, sing at the Clearwater Festival. And I was only, what was I, 28 years old, and I was just about to go to Ireland to um, just uh, hitchhike around and, and meet Irish people. And so I was absolutely just gutted. I, I was. It was the first of many situations in my professional career, as you could call it, where I was uh, torn <laughs> by the, the desire to be in two different places at the same time. But right. yeah, I ended up uh, turning down Pete's invitation and going to Ireland. So, uh, uh, so you grew up on the East Coast, and then you made it out west at some point. I take it. I was I was a very um, uh, bifurcated by coastal sort, and I uh, went back and forth in my twenties. I, I don't know how many times I went back and forth between uh, mm -hmm. the coasts. Spent quite a bit of time in the Midwest as well as in the South, uh, but mainly lived in uh, on either the East or the West Coast. And I've been in Portland now for sixteen years, and I got. Um, more or less settled in one place as a result of having children, which, you know, the, the practicalities when you're raising a child with another person who has a job in, in Portland, you know, it sort of makes you tend to want to spend a lot of time here, you know. Mm -hmm. So let's uh, uh, ease into this subject. Um, I've, I've, I've tried to broach it on, on my own and sort of implicitly or, you know, as a matter of various interviews, certainly recently Medea Benjamin it, mm. it uh, 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 exemplifies uh, a lot of these tensions and conflicts on the left that yeah. uh, we don't uh, tend to address directly and attempt to actually resolve. She's been uh, heavily criticized for her stance on Ukraine, and of course, uh, the few people in the in in political power on the Democrat, the progressive Democrats, who seem to think privately um, that that. Uh, we do need to negotiate that that the war was was inevitably going to just grind on and on and prevent us from actually addressing the crucial crises and also prevent us from addressing you know the United States and NATO's actual you know whatever role we had whether it was you know a, a major role whether it was a significant minor role, whatever the role was there was a role and you know we have to look at our own house first anyway so yes yeah, so um, the the issues of, and the issues go way back. And I know you're something of a, a, a historian of, of the left. So I want to, you know, kind of maybe start out by looking at um, how the left tends to, you know, tends to become sectarian as a as a way of not addressing some of the fundamental conflicts that come up, ideological, tactical, practical, whatever they are. There's just the constant splitting up into different groups. Mm. You know, the Communist Party splits up into the whatever, the Socialist Party, you know. So give us, tell us your, maybe your take on what that, what that's all about, that historical tendency. 
I think um, there, there's, there's so many different sort of um, political tendencies that have been uh, trying to be dominant on the left and in other elements of society for a very long time. And there's different uh, forces at work um, in society, in any society, in our society, that uh, are that prefer one or another of the different political tendencies. And there are a lot of different reasons why one uh, element of society might prefer one political tendency or another. And it's not a black and white situation by any means. And it's also not a uh, situation that w- would that you could easily call polarized in the sense of two poles. There are multiple poles within society, multiple different uh, interests. And, and some of those are and some, sometimes it's, it's very confusing because like you can have uh, people who that we could call accelerationists who who actually are you know coming from the left but would like to see more authoritarianism and and uh, in order to in their minds uh, bring about uh, more opposition to that authoritarianism you know this is it, this is an actual thing it's an actual historical thing it's this phenomenon exists today in a very big way on uh, in certain elements of the left this accelerationist sort of orientation you know that's a, that's definitely a thing uh, just like liberalism is a thing, just like belief in, in the welfare state is a thing, belief in, in uh, building a society based on cooperatives rather than the welfare state. There's all sorts of different orientations historically and uh, currently. But I think um, what has been, uh, I think most everybody who's you know not got their head stuck deep into the sand today can, is aware who's actually involved at all with any social media platforms certain ones more than others but if you're involved with social media platforms and you're aware that the tendency of the way these platforms are actually designed um, has has really uh, amplified the divisions on the left uh, massively and amplified the sort of tendency of the left to split at at, at any um, you know opportunity uh, and which used to be uh, a phenomenon, and now it is such a phenomenon that it's really um, become a, a joke. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's been a joke for a long time, but it's it's uh, it's something that uh, really we now resemble Portlandia. The TV uh, series used to be um, something that some of us found offensive because it was too um, it, it was caricaturing people, um, but now uh, it is actually just depicting normal life in, in Portland. Um, you know, this is not no longer caricature, and that happens sometimes. Reality lives up to the caricature. Uh, there's there's a whole lot of different historical <laughs> periods where I think uh, many aspects of reality have, in fact, lived up to characters, and there's a reason why that happens. You know, art reflects reality just like reality f- reflects art. It goes both ways, but um, you know, it's uh, we we're deep into this um, this uh, sort of um, you know, belief in 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 um, in sort of inner purity and safe space, and nobody should ever be offended, and um, it, you know this this kind of mentality um, it totally lends itself to a division, splitting up, to being used by the authorities um, as they are doing, as a means of divide and rule. The effectiveness of our own uh, embrace on the left of uh, these kinds of ideas in dividing the left has been remarkable, and and then the the cont- continuous use of of you know and belief in these kinds of ideas, even though they are so obviously easy to divide and rule us with, is also remarkable, and 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 often 
doesn't seem like it could be possible without massive infiltration of the left, which I'm sure is a huge, huge problem. And so so um, this is Wednesday Talk Radio. I am Paul Rowland, back after a three-week hiatus. Um, glad to be here. Uh, thank you all for sticking with listening to this, uh, what, what, what was on this spot while I was gone, hopefully, and listening to the rest of uh, KBU, which is, continues to be a vital uh, source of information and uh and public discussion of important issues. And uh, we are, I do have a website at kboo.fm and uh, hope you are a supporter. If you're not, please consider becoming one. Uh, you can go to uh, kboo.fm and there's a donate button there. And there's uh, lots of ways, uh, you know, we're, we are s uh, slowly opening up the station again. Um, we are looking for volunteers on our various uh, programs. Uh, you know, we need, we need more board operators, for example. Um, you know, we need people to talk on the air, to do the news, to, uh, you know, even possibly get your own program. So check out kbo.fm, how to get involved and all that. And uh, we're talking about uh, you know, the important question of actually addressing Conflicts, you know, because say say you're in a marriage, right, or uh, you know, in a job situation, any kind of situation where you're, you know, you have to, you know, be together and kind of work things out. Conflicts arise, so it shouldn't be any different, you know, in in politics that that actually have to really work things out. The problem is, well, one of the one of the big problems is. You know the 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 powers that be on the quote left, and whether they they can even be considered left. We will have to talk about that. Yeah. Ne what next, do we actually. mean by you know, that? What do we mean by left? But I was going to say, you know, I mentioned the the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Well, what are they in contrast to? Some people call it the corporate wing. You know, whatever the the dominant forces that you know do embrace a lot of really uh, good, vital, important positions of various forms of social and racial justice and you know some basic forms of certainly of gender equality um a, a, a whole bunch of things um uh, lbt uh q rights um and you know things that that if they didn't stand up for them then we would continue to go backwards in the current climate so yeah that's incredibly important that we have people who are, you know, standing, continuing to stand for whatever court decisions have been made or have been made against us, and for you know the legis landmark legislation that t tends to be being eroded now. But the the problem is that the as I think you and I possibly agree that some of the major contradictions that we're really facing that's leading to climate chaos, it continued, you know, the billionaire class ruling over us are basic economic questions. Yeah. And those basic economic questions, you know, just the way capitalism operates, we, you know, th there, there are some major differences about how to approach that and questions of, of the war economy, which is totally related. So in that context, let's talk about what the left really is and our you know, the mainstream or corporate Democrats really on the left. 
Yeah, I mean, these are very important questions because the the term left, um, first of all, is, is of extremely limited uh, use, I guess, just as many other terms are because they're it's used and misused by so many different people. But, I mean, for one thing, we, we, we you know, being on uh, in the United States, uh, I think it's, it's very important to point out to anybody listening who actually pays attention to the corporate media that when the corporate media, what the corporate media refers to as left and right, and what you know, the so-called public, uh, you know, radio and so-called public television, you know, which I I don't differ, differentiate in terms of ideologically from the corporate media. What they um, what they refer to as left and right uh, has nothing to do with historically what what we have re- meant by left and right. When they talk about left and right, they're talking about the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, and and uh, so they're talking about two parties that have long ago in both embraced capitalism and empire. And um, and you know certainly f- fundamentally in, in many other ways embraced all sorts of horrible positions in in on so many different issues, but uh, they talk they talk different lines, but uh, their actual positions have been horrendous in so many ways for so long and have been so uh, damaging to the welfare of the majority of the population of this country and of the environment in this country and the world and of the people of Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan and so many other places. And with the bipartisan rule of the capitalist imperialists is what we're dealing with here. And and they we can call them whatever we want. But uh, that's that's the establishment that we're we're dealing with, and if, and and those of us who who embrace the term left in in the sense it, it, where it, that it, of its original meaning, then it, it is about uh, the working class standing up to the ruling class. The ruling class are the ones who are promoting capitalism and empire, and those who are standing up against them for uh, a, a redistribution of the pie which they are holding onto most of. Uh, you know that is what the left is about, and redistributing that wealth and power is certainly all about giving uh, wealth and power and control uh, to the marginalized. Uh, majority of society, uh, whether we're talking about people marginalized through poverty or marginalized uh, through uh, racial or gender discrimination or any number of other forms of marginalization, but the majority of society is uh, a a marginalized working class. And and that's that's a fundamentally important thing to understand. This is a capitalist society divided into the ruling class and the working class, and then there's a few stooges in the middle who are defending the interests of the ruling class, uh, you know. But uh, this is, most of the people in this society are poor. Um, they're, They're also mostly white. You know, and there's no contradiction there because that's what capitalism does. It causes, creates massive amounts of poverty, and it doesn't just just create poverty among women or or people of color. It creates poverty generally. You know, through through the means of the capitalist system, it's supposed to work this way. It's always worked this way, and it pits people against each other. It pits races and ethnicities and genders and everybody else against each other. That's the way it works. You know, and the just to skip ahead to this week, um, the song. Richmond, north of Richmond, which is which has gotten tens of millions of views on multiple platforms and is the talk of social media for the past few days, is a brilliant song. It's a beautiful song. Every word in it. Uh, it's also a br- brilliant musical uh, delivery as well. This guy, I don't remember his name. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I do remember his name soon because he's a great songwriter. And um, this this song is being embraced by 
uh, the many elements of what, what they call the right. And uh, it's, it's obvious to me and should be obvious to anybody else with two brain cells to rub together that if this song, this brilliant, beautiful song is being embraced by the right, that's a wonderful thing, which we should all be celebrating rather than complaining about his use of a phrase that supposedly um, supposedly uh, it, it means that he believes in the Confederacy. This is nonsense. This is just nonsense that's being thrown around by, by people who, who really should know better in some cases. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really embarrassing. It's a, it's a great song. I'm going to learn it. So... Um, the number to call in and join our conversation is 503-231-8187, 503-231-8187. I'm Paul Rowland, um, back in the host seat after a few weeks, and my guest today is David Rovix, um, Portland-based uh, singer-songwriter, performer, and as of uh, actually, when, when so, uh, you know, you've always been expressing yourself politically, so you've always been writing and writing songs. I don't know if you've uh, been writing essays like this uh, this week with Dave Rovix for for long. How, how when did that start? I um, when my good friend Brad Will was killed by the paramilitaries in Mexico in uh, Oaxaca when he was uh, standing in solidarity with the teachers who were on strike in Oaxaca and he was there in Mexico and he had been traveling a lot around Latin America doing similar things around that time. But in October two thousand six, when he was uh, shot in the chest and killed. I uh, wrote. Um, uh, I wrote about him, and and I I was I didn't set out to write a song or a poem or an essay, but what it what it turned out to be was was a short essay, and um, and the reason why it was an essay was just because nothing rhymed. So I guess it wasn't a song and it wasn't a poem in the rhyming sense. So I thought, okay, I guess I just wrote an essay. So I kind of put it in paragraph form, um, and. Um, and then I got a lot of uh, positive response uh, from that, and I and I realized that um, that that my favorite writers um, like Chris Hedges and and Robert Fisk and and um, John Ross, uh, for example, uh, are, were all actually poets, and and that's why they were so good at writing prose, and and they they just weren't telling us uh, that they were approaching their prose um, with with the mind of a poet. And uh, but when I started writing essays and approaching essays from a poetic perspective in terms of concision and you know being concise and and uh, and and saying exactly what I want to say and nothing more, you know, um, then. Um, then, then I started uh, learning how to write a good essay, which I had never known how to do before 2006. But then I, I started writing them more often because I was getting a lot of uh, positive uh, feedback for them. So I thought um, that's it's it's not that different from writing songs, really. Um, it, it's just a, it just you, they just don't rhyme, you know. But if you um, if you approach essay writing that from you know that kind of economical perspective of of a songwriter, I think it, it tends to work a lot better. Um, I'm not sure how else people write essays, um, but certainly they a lot of people don't do it very well, and I didn't uh, until I started looking at it from that perspective. There's no room for for a paragraph that doesn't belong there in an essay, just like there's no room in a song for a line that doesn't have a reason to exist. 
you know, I mean, every rhyme in a, in a, in a song has to be perfect. And that, that's just obvious for anybody who's into music. You can't, there's no room for an imperfect rhyme. It, you, you, you blow up the song at that point, you destroy it. And uh, you, you break the spell. You know, everything has to be perfect, but it's the same with an essay. You know, there's no room for imperfection as far as, uh, you know, things like a, a paragraph that doesn't have a reason to exist, you know. So you're, you can find your uh, This Week with David Rubik's on a, your Substack, davidrubix.substack.com, I believe. And you've also, you also have your own website, David Rovics, that's R-O-V-I-C-S dot com. And you also have a podcast on there, too. So... Um, that's where you can find uh, my guest, David Rovix. And again, if you'd like to join this conversation about uh, confronting the divisions on the left, 503-231-8187. So uh, let's talk about uh, some of the, well, I don't know, let's talk a little bit about Portland, maybe. Um, you know, Portland's become this real flashpoint for the right wing. Um, and for, you know, a lot of people on the left. I mean, I remember when I started to get active back in the, the mid to late 80s, you know, Portland was, well, you know, there's like little Beirut. Portland was a real beacon. I, I was very proud, you know, of our role in sort of being, I felt, you know, rightly or wrongly, this is where I was. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't anywhere else. So it's not like I could compare it to being somewhere else. There were people who traveled around a lot more than I did and maybe could compare and contrast maybe your one of those people. But I, I definitely thought we were sort of on, on the leading edge of something. Certainly, you know, radical environmental activism was one. Um, you know, we had a very active Central America solidarity movement here. Um, uh, no nuclear movement, shut down Trojan. Um, certainly the Northwest has been on the leading edge and, you know, us Euros or whiteys didn't have uh, much to do with it, but on the leading edge of Native American activism, which I got involved in supporting that, so that was another big thing. But yeah, and it all sort of, came, I felt it kind of came together in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and then kind of leading up to Seattle in 1999. You know, the Portland crew was a, was a big part of that. And, and like I said, little we got the reputation for being, a, for sh shutting down a lot of the you know, presidential candidates, major figures who came to town, the Dan Quayles and the George Bushes, et cetera. And, and, and you know, they got to be not not because anything we did, really. It was because the police tended to foment riots because they didn't like large numbers of people engaging in, uh, you know, heated uh, public discourse, as it were. So um, recently... Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk about the, you know, what went on in, in 2020? Because that, I don't know, is that something to talk about? It, it became yeah, such yeah, a but, flashpoint for the for the right wing. Yeah, but you were just talking about the 80s and 90s, and yeah. I'd love I'd love to chime in on that because okay. I'm I'm the same age as you. Um, I think uh, 56. I don't know, but well, you're, I think we you're were a, a, a quarter, a couple. third of a generation younger. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the whatever. No, you look young anyway, Paul. Thank you. You're looking good, despite the white hair. <laughs> despite the white hair. <laughs> um, but in the 80s and 90s, uh, I think it's, it's, it's okay, 
So, I mean, s- s- people either have to look into this or if they're too young, you know, just for the moment, tr- maybe they have to just trust me on this. But uh, it's hard to um, imagine if, if you've been active on the left since 2005 and particularly since, since 2011, it's, um, it, it's probably really hard for people to imagine who were not around as adults before 2005 that um, before 2005, throughout the 80s, 90s, and up until 2005, we were completely ignored by the corporate media. And, and it can't be overstated just to the extent to which they ignored the grassroots left, right? I mean, and, um, you know, when things would happen, uh, well, of course, if, okay, when George Bush's uh, motorcade was uh, delayed, was, was uh, you know, hit with eggs and whatever in downtown Portland, that made national news. But otherwise, most of those events that you're talking about, Dan Quayle's, uh, uh, you know, talk getting, you know, getting canceled or, or, or even just um, the the environmental movement that was happening at the time, Redwood Summer, and and of course all the corollaries of you know protests going on in Oregon at, at the time, and all all that stuff, was ignored by the corporate media, overwhelmingly ignored. When um, throughout the '90s, the sanctions in Iraq, uh, throughout the '80s, the the Contra War, I mean the the uh, the, the civil war in Nicaragua, you know the the um, all the protests, all the, you know, Ben Linder's death. I mean, so much of the stuff that went on in the 80s and 90s, we've heard about it, you know, for many of us, it's it's sort of a legendary history, uh, but it was totally ignored. And if you, if, if by the press, and if you grew up in, in, in a suburb uh, of New York City, like where I grew up, and, you know, I didn't even know there was anything happening in the 80s until I left home. I mean, I was completely in the dark. Uh, you just did not hear about that stuff, and um, and so it, it's it's very understandable that you have the impressions you have, Paul, about Portland being a hot spot of activity. It was, but it was only one of many, and um, and the reason why anyone uh, could be forgiven for not you know realizing that uh, that it was just one of many hot spots, um, or maybe not fully knowing that because because you weren't there you weren't you weren't somewhere other than portland and you didn't hear about what was happening out, outside of portland in the corporate media you heard about it from other sources but you know you wouldn't you wouldn't even know um you know at the time just what was going on in, uh, in other places unless you were there which is you know one of the valuable things about being a traveling performer uh, at the time was was getting to realize that not only was seattle san francisco new york city boston washington dc and all kinds of other places major hot spots for all sorts of uh, left-wing activity back then but so were many little college towns throughout the South, throughout the Midwest, and in fact, throughout the 1990s, the best and most well-attended gigs and best organized events that I sang at were in the Midwest and the South. Uh, these places just, um, you know, the, the coasts get this reputation, which is completely undeserved. There's at least as much, right now, at least as much left-wing activity in Knoxville, Tennessee, as there is in Portland, Oregon, and I'm not exaggerating. Okay, so it was a, a bit of a, uh, a, 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 a self, self-centered or sort of, you know, very regional, localistic perspective. No, it was a hot, Portland was definitely a hot spot. It, so was Eugene. Right. Um, so, uh, and, of, well, and of course, you know, just to, to uh, plug Cebu again, I mean, the reason why some places 
I remember, I think it was Howard Zinn who, who uh, said this, that he, he, he always knew when he came into a, a, a city or town that had a community radio because it was much more activated. His audiences were bigger. People were much more well-informed. There yeah. was a lot more on-the-street activity. And so, yeah, KBU definitely uh, contributed quite a bit to what was going on. And the Alliance newspaper um, also, when, you know, there's there weren't too many sort of radical papers around anymore since the sort of the, the demise of the the radical underground, uh, you know, weekly or even some dailies at the time. You yeah. Know, in, the, in the 70s, they kind of transferred it into, they got transmogrified into the, the alt weekly, like the Willamette Week. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the Portland Mercury came on the scene later, you know, which have, you know, they do have some good reporting, but mm -hmm. they don't have that, just that real that kind of edge the edge yeah. the edge let us say mm -hmm. so all that said um but community radio yeah that can't be overstated either and i know we're at, on a community radio station but it was very much the case especially before the internet th throughout the 90s you know that up and down the west coast from bellingham to san diego you had an uninterrupted uh you know west coast that that had really active community radio stations everywhere and and it was uh, and then and then also pirate radio low power fm was also a big thing in the 90s and you you'd find a, a very active community radio in in lots of different college towns but also in you know, like particularly places like boston and new york city and i think um, you know for sure the the level of awareness and and activity on the west coast and in places like boston new york had so much to do with community radio blanketing the place and you know which is to say it had so much to do with the institutions that had been built by the left over the past over the course of the 20th century of which community radio is one and of course then we can lead into talking about uh, the role of social media should we so desire which you kind of already touched on but we do have a couple callers looks like our first caller up is santiago go ahead you're on the air good morning um yeah um i just wanted to point out before i get into my what i was going to say um so i agree with the with the with the guests that um you know that richmond north of richmond song is really pretty and while i do agree with a lot of it there's a particular part that uh really stuck out to me amidst the beautifulness it said uh it said uh you know lord we got folks in the street ain't got nothing to eat and the obese milk and welfare well god if you're five foot three and 300 pounds taxes ought to not pay for your fudge rounds you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I didn't I, know that. I didn't he hear that line. That's incest. Yeah, that's not nice. Not that's nice. That's what I'm saying, and, I, and that's why I see it being embraced by the right because the right. I mean, the the and you know, and here's the thing: like, the right has a lot of their points right. Okay, they have a lot of their points correct, but the problem is, is they're not trying to be restorative. They're trying to be punitive, and that's what I really see. And so, when you have a lyric talking about the obese milking welfare and, you know, t tax dollars ought not pay for your fudge rounds, but they don't talk about how our tax dollars pay for, for uh, M16 rounds or, you know, anything like that. But they, you know, they want, they want America like it is. They just don't want it to be inclusive. But oh, but anyway, wait, are you, so, who wants America like it is? Are you saying, are you saying the, the, the this right. songwriter? What about this songwriter? I mean, he sounds like he doesn't want America like it is. Well, when you, you got, you have to, I mean, you have, it has to be critical. It has to be critically analyzed and that, you know, that, you know, it, it's basically where the, the right sees that the country is being stolen from them. 
And it doesn't really matter who. They just see their country being stolen. But I believe that as a leftist that this country really, I mean, it belongs to my people if we're going to talk about property. But we don't even view it as property. We view it as mother. So, you know, this, while people are talking about, you know, their private property, they're talking, we're talking about living off of our mother. So if anybody's on welfare, it's all of us. Who owns this country, Santiago? Who owns this, who owns this country? It's currently being occupied by Western influence. So I guess if you want to be technical, if the occupiers have power, but it doesn't really belong to anybody, but... Yeah, but who 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 claims to own it? I mean, who who's uh who's got the titles to the land? Um, uh, I mean, under colonialism, the co- the colonizers do. So yeah, but that's that's can we can we break that down a little bit among the colonizers, of which I am uh, maybe theoretically descended. Um, who owns the titles today? Is it just the colonizers generally, or is it a certain subset of them? It's a certain subset, but the thing is, is we're not taught that. We're, we're definitely so not even, taught that, but, so, but that song, North of Richmond, is, is getting at that very question um, very but it's, deeply. But it's, with, not, but it's not getting at the question if you're trying to blame five foot three, 300 pound people, when those people who are singing those songs probably have five foot three, 300 pound people milking, milking welfare because white people are the largest demographic on welfare. Yeah, I, I, that you know I I'm definitely I, I'm not not at all defending that horrible line okay, in the song. But what, but the, what I'm saying, I, I get what you're saying about it being a beautiful song and people embracing. But the problem is, is that the right is hijacking the uh, the um, they're hijacking people people's desperation to get some semblance of 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 what they view to be normalcy. So if they can take a beautiful song talking about working all day and slaving away like they do in a lot of the in a lot of those places but, but then instead of putting the onus on the business owners who were the ones who were depressing their wages and taking away their ability to take care of themselves rather than placing it on the rather than placing it on you know you know welfare queens or whatever they want to call them then they're totally missing the point and it's exactly why it's being embraced by the right right it doesn't it sound i i don't know the song you should it sounds hear it. like well i should but it sounds like what Santiago's saying is, is there doesn't sound like doesn't seem to be like real political consciousness in the sense that uh, uh, all yeah, three of just, us. It's just yeah, everybody. It's, everybody it's should hear the song and think about it for themselves because I mean I'm just I'm just kind of like I, I'm just I'm not sure what to make of the the elephant in the living room that I'm trying to get you to mention Santiago, which which nobody seems to be wanting to talk about, which is like the main thing the t- song is addressing, which is rich men north of Richmond. We're talking about, and who yeah. owns this society? Um, just for anybody else out there who happens not to be aware of, of this reality, 1%, 1% of the population of this country owns more than half of the wealth of this country. I hope everybody yeah. is aware of that. That is the yeah, ruling class of which I agree. speak. Right. So, so that's, yeah, that's what I, the song I, I is talking about. Other than, I mean, well, there's yeah, these, but, these, I'm, but I, what I'm saying is that if but they're not really addressing rich men north of rich men. It's in the song. In the it's a, it's the chorus to the song. How is that not being talked I know about? It's in the cor- I know it's, but the thing is, is you're, see, you're talking about the rich men north of Richmond, which is in the chorus, but in there, they're sliding in what is the fascism. Because everybody who works in those places is on some form of welfare. 
So if you want to take and you want to take one person's anecdotal experience about working hard and not having to depend on the government and then slam all of his brethren who are who need government assistance in order to survive. But then talking about the rich men north of Richmond, not realizing that it's their it's their depressed wages through the rich men north of Richmond that make it impossible for them to feed themselves on working more than 40 hours a week. Then you're just, uh, I mean, I'm not saying it's not a beautiful song, but they're sliding in the fascism with the, with what's supposed to be consciousness, which ends up taking the whole thing and just turning it into colonized aggrievement. Well, I, th- I, I so, think, uh, th- I think that's, but, a, those are really beautiful points. I, and I wish I had the, the text of the song. I wish I, 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 I haven't even heard the song. You can look it up. It's, you can, you can find, you can find the lyrics anywhere. Yeah, it's I right there. I'll, I'll look, I mean, I'll I just, look, it, I'll look it up as we speak. But no, I think, but anyways, I think the that's point what... is, is that, Go ahead. Well, what I wanted to point out is, is that, see, this is the reason why the left has such a hard time, because we're not defining our points. We want to take aggrievement and just try to make it like this generalized thing that everybody can get into. But the point is, but the truth of the matter is, is that, you know, the people who have the most to lose cannot lead the movement. Which is unfortunately, you know, either the one percent or the, or really just, I mean, really just colonizers in general. I mean, they can follow, but you know, the people who have had truly the most success in leading any sort of resistance movements have been black and brown folks. Whether it's you know the Black Panthers or you know like the Poor People's Movement under the under Martin Luther King, or you're talking about um, the you know, Poor People's uh, Movement about, under like, Martin Luther King. What are you talking? That, that was know. a majority white movement but it was it was black led even though there was even though there was white folks the point is is that the is that you know people like this oliver this oliver dude i can't remember his last name but the the thing is is like even though his aggrievement is real his privilege blinds him from the truth of what's really going on and it's like and as long as we seek to preserve a you know the united states in the state that it's in because it really has no right to exist as long as we seek to as long as we seek to be able to preserve that then we're not going to get anywhere because well, we, the, okay, the, we, the united states itself is the problem not whatever rich men north of richmond it's the, well, the system that creates well, could, the richmond north of richmond and i just don't think that that's something that's Addressed by you know, you know. So hold hold on. Okay, we we do have another caller, and and this has been really this has been really instructive. What I what I would just say, and and I'd like to hear uh, David Rovick's response. So yeah, I I came to a similar position as you from from a different perspective. You know, as a, a Euro American uh, supporter of specifically of Native American struggles here in the Northwest, I came to I came to see this. I really came to look at it as a as colonized land because of basically because of the experiences I had directly with people and you know both on the reservation and on you know uh to uh, territories either ceded or unceded often unceded um so yeah I I I came to view the United States that way too the problem is how do you actually build a movement where you actually challenge that power whether you know whether you're talking about you know you know uh you not having the united states or whether you're talking about some form of you know different um uh power setup um 
if it's a, if a, a state or a, you know, break, breaking up the United States, whatever. The problem always remains, how do you actually get to a point where you have the counter power necessary? So the, which is what I think David Robix is, is talking about, what we're talking about, the divisions on the left or wherever the divisions are that continue to prevent us from actually getting anywhere near some semblance of, of unity that's required because we can talk about this all we want, but the, the, you know, actually getting to, you know, some sort of revolutionary situation or some sort of serious challenge to the powers that be is going to take something. So anyway, we got to let you go, Santiago, because we have only 10 minutes left and we got another caller. Um, but David, what, what, do, what do you think about that? Um, well, I think that Santiago is, has been presenting a orientation that is very popular on the left in Portland and among young people in the society today, as well as some older folks. Uh, and it's the uh, perspective that basically uh, is is represented in books like Settlers, which I still should read and have not. But um, this idea that... Um, that's a great book. I, yeah, I've, I've read into it. Yeah, it really is. Good. It's a really brilliant book. I mean, I just don't tend to um, like the the thesis that this society that the main uh, the main divide in in this society is between um, colonizers and colonized. I think uh, tends to miss the point of why these divisions are created in the first place, which is to maintain the rule of the rich. And I think uh, the, the rich is, uh, the, the, the main divide in this country is the divide between the rich and everybody else. And um, other divides exist, but are far less dramatic in any possible conceivably measurable way. In, in one's mind, other divides might be more dramatic, but by any measure that you can actually put on a piece of paper, the divide between the rich and the poor, uh, it, everything else is just insignificant in comparison. Um, and, and that is, I think, that point cannot be overemphasized, and I think it is a point that is felt deeply by poor people who vote for Trump and poor people who vote for Biden and poor people who don't vote all over the country. And we have to unite the working class around our common enemy, which is the rich. And we have to uh, stop uh, stop trying to d distract everybody with all this other stuff because rich men well, north think, of Richmond are are running the country. They are well, think, uh, they own the country. Well, before we get to before we get to Robbie, I, I want to just push back a little bit because I think it, it belittles, and I think maybe Santiago could express this a lot better than me from a, a position that is obviously much more real on this issue than mine. <clears throat> but I think just calling them distractions, I think doesn't do justice, because I, what I think is we need to somehow and I think the, the best of the, you know, of this sort of later new generation of activists, you know, the, the whole intersectionality analysis, the best of it really points to the need to for people to come from their the strength of their positionality, whether it's um, their sexual identity, their gender identity, their ethnic racial uh, identity, and to bring that to bear towards exactly the kind of struggle that you're talking about against the ruling class. I think we can't call those 
all those subsidiary things, we can't call them subsidiary. And I think that's the challenge that this, you know, more recent uh, generation of activists and scholarship has, has brought to bear. But anyway, um, we have a couple more callers. Let's go. Robbie's next up, and then we got to go really quickly because we got some other callers. Go ahead, Robbie. Okay, thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Great. Uh, I just wanted to add, uh, I, I, one of the things with that song when I, I heard it when it was all over the internet like a week or two ago, I, I just, it's on, on one hand, I think what it is is it's reflective of where we are uh, as, a, as an American society. We have been completely programmed with our media. We have a left and a right, which people now take as, I was just, you know, like you, when, you, when you started this out, you know, it's like there's the, what, what we call left and right on TV, uh, you know, I've probably said this before, but it's like we used to be able. I, I was a news junkie when I was 10 years old, and what's happened with the news, I, I can tell, is you know, 20 years ago, you could put on MSNBC and you could put on Fox News, and they would agree on the facts, and then the talking heads would come on and they would debate their opinions and their talking. You know, it's been their talking points. Now, if you were to watch CNN and Fox News report on the same story, they can't even agree on what the facts are. And so we're at a place where people are, you know, and, and now because of that, we're dismissive of a society, like as a society, we are dismissive of one another, because if you don't believe what I believe, then clearly, you know, you're wrong. You're listening to Fox News. You're listening to CNN. And one thing I wanted to bring up about Portland is, you know, when I moved out to Portland in 2011 or 2012, you know, it was great. There was the Portland Action Lab. There was a lot of stuff. It's definitely a hotbed. But what I saw right away was what I called the elitist anarchists. These these groups of people that just are, oh, I'm so much more, you know, active. I'm so much more against the system than you are. And it turns into uh, what, what um, uh, you were describing, what you saw in the Midwest, is the communities there are more tight-knit. Where, yeah. You know, the communities there in Arizona where there's lots of racists, people stick up for each other. And the people who, it's like, you can look at somebody and go, oh, he's a good person, I can tell. I went to Portland and the racists are putting up the Black Lives Matter signs because, you know, it's all just so mixed. But right now what I see is, you know, where we're not talking, I think that politics is a tool, uh, maybe not so much of a distraction um, as it is, you know, it's been completely, uh, we've been, you know, the CIA director once said that once the American, once everything the American people believe is completely wrong, uh, then our disinformation program complete. And I think that this is the result of it because now we're falling for the lesser of two evils every time. If you're not left, you're right. It's a binary world where, oh, you know, you, you think that the vaccine was bad. You must be a Republican and yeah. you must think this. And now we attribute other things and you can't question it without being lumped into a category. Okay, you're so right. Uh, we gotta, you're so that. right. Okay, we gotta let, we got to let you go because we're running out of time. Go ahead, David. Well, I, I, I just agree with everything he just said and I think he'd probably like my song I'm a Better Anarchist Than You which is about this very subject. Okay. Um, boy, it, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we'll have to do this uh, uh, again. I think this is a, a crucial, crucial subject matter um let's just see uh, what april has to say you got to be real quick april oh got anybody else well we only have a couple of minutes oh i guess everybody everybody dropped off right at the end here um so uh, i always urge people to call earlier than later is better so um, they had to wait till i i made them mad enough to call <laughs> so uh yeah uh, so, so you know, you you talk about. Uh, let's just talk about this. You have a very pr provocative statement that the 
the uh, liberals in the Democratic Party are the uh, best recruiters for the far right. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, the liberals and the, the Democratic Party and those calling themselves leftists who sound a lot like liberal Democrats to me because they don't want to talk about class, which is the obvious main divide in this society, uh, what they are doing through what they call intersectionality, which is um, a wonderful thing in, in, in conceptually and, of course, uh, you know, sticking up for all people who are marginalized in any form is extremely important. Uh, but what they talk about when they talk about intersectionality, when, they're, they're, when the liberal elite is talking about this, when the Democrats that, uh, you know, in, in Washington, D.C., in the Congress, when they are talking about this uh, and talking about marginalized people, they are intentionally, intentionally avoiding class because it's an effort to divide and conquer the people through talking about all the other forms of marginalization other than the main one that is that is causing so many tens of millions of people to be in dire poverty in this society uh, if you ignore the elephant in the living room that just angers people in all kinds of ways and you just foment uh, this this anger because you're talking about this this uh, elite without talking about the elite you know because it's the elite talking about the elite these are the elite these people the, the average Democrat in Cong in the Congress is richer than the average Republican these are the elite so what uh, what do we do about it in 30 seconds? <laughs> Overthrow capitalism. <laughs> capitalism is the problem, folks. And, and, you know, people can discount me for whatever reasons they want to discount me for, for stating the obvious. But all I'm doing is stating the obvious. And you can look into it yourself and figure it out. You, you, can, you, can, you can say, oh, David Rovix is 56 years old. He's white. He's male. Uh, you can say uh, whatever you want about me. I was raised by a Holocaust survivor. My my I, I'm, I'm descended from people who were slaughtered in Europe in the Holocaust. I'm descended from other people who were starving in Ireland. And I'm also descended from uh, settlers who, who came before the Mayflower. You know, I, I got all kinds of background, and none of it matters. None of it matters. None of it matters. None of it matters. All that matters is capitalism is the problem. We need to confront that. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or Jewish or native or any of that stuff. If you have eyes and you can see, and you got the same eyes that I got, you got the same red blood I got, got you can smell, you got the same nose I got, capitalism needs to go. That's the problem, well, folks. And that's the last word. Capitalism is a problem. We got to go. We're out of time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Was organizing workers in Hamburg just the same? Organizing beneath the flag of deepest red, a new dawn of peace and freedom clearly shining in her head. Katarina Jakob. You're listening to KBOO Portland.